Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Yivamot, daf nun dalet, page 54. Daf today is a little bit, I would say it's a little bit of a challenge to speak about. There's an awful lot of discussion, pretty graphic discussion of sexual intercourse and the implications, you know, in the cases of Yibum, of what, you know, what, what all this um explicit detail means for you know has has sexual intercourse taken place and what are the implications if it has and what are the implications if it hasn't it is i would say not necessarily comfortable dinner table conversation depending on your dinner table i suppose um but i want to talk but don't here you about- also respect that like the gemara talks about it <laughs> like Oh, sure. Not only that, I think the Gemara has to talk about it because because this is exactly the halacha, right? Like all these, uh, you know, details are necessary, but that doesn't necessarily make it comfortable chatting, you know? Yes. And I think it also really draws attention to what the actual halacha, what the actual piece of yubum is, that it's really a sexual act between the brother and his deceased brother's wife. Um, and so therefore it gets very sexually explicit to understand what is the, what, like halachically, what do we consider to be intercourse? Like what is the sexual act halachically? And so that's why it's a very graphic page. Right. It also, by the way, makes me um, stop to think about the fact that, you know, we talk about Yibum as being about the child that is to be born on the dead brother's name. You know, and then all of this is about the act that, yeah, sure, you know, we hope it's going to result in a child. But what if it never does, right? It's still considered yibum based on the physical intimacy, not based on the result of having a child to be named, you know, on the on the dead brother's name. It's, you know, just a, an observation. I want to I wanna delve in here to, to actually where the Gemara is very clear without getting too detailed it's still very clear that sex is necessary that sexual intercourse is necessary for yibum to take place where it says gufa amar of yehuda yashin lo yivimto meaning a person who is sleeping a man who is sleeping literally sleeping this is not a euphemism has not acquired meaning he has not functionally acquired his uh, his yavama meaning yibum has not taken place the Amar crab because we've got a verse in Devarim chapter 25 that says, Yevama Yavo Aleha. He must Yavo Aleha. This is the biblical way of, of describing intercourse. Ad And so the point is that he needs to sleep with her in our modern parlance. He the this sex act has to be for the sake of actual sex sexual intercourse. And if he is sleeping. Right, meaning if he is sleeping and he has no intent, so he's truly sleeping. Even if they were to actually engage in the sex act, but he's asleep, so he doesn't have intent, then it doesn't count for the for the sake of yibum. So the Gemara asks, brings a brayta and says, "Vahatanya ben er ben yashen." Don't we already know from elsewhere, meaning in this brayta, that you could acquire that a man could acquire his yivama, meaning that the act of yibum could take place whether he is awake or he's asleep, meaning if they, in fact, sleep together, even if he's asleep, which is not supposed to happen, right? There's other halachot about not sleeping, um, not having 
sex while asleep. But leaving that aside, usually it's about the woman being asleep, of course. Ben Er Ben Yashin, Ema Ben Era Ben Yashina. So that's exactly what the Gemara does, right? It says, let's make sure that that Brita is really talking about the woman. The point is that whether she is awake or asleep, again, she's not supposed to be having sex upon herself, right, while she's asleep. Um, her awareness, basically, is not part of the levirate marriage in terms of Yibum being actually affected, right? If Yibum, if if the couple sleeps together and she is awake or asleep, Yibum has taken place. If the couple sleeps together and the man is asleep, then Yibum has not taken place from a halakhic perspective. And so now, of course, the obvious question I think to many people is how can it possibly be that this man could be having sexual intercourse without being awake? Vatanya ben er, who ben yashin, who? Meaning, the Gemara says, one second, we know from elsewhere, there's a break that says specifically, we're talking about whether the man is awake or asleep. And ben erahi, ben yashinahi, and regardless of whether the man is awake or asleep, or the woman is awake or asleep. So forget that emendation that we've just talked about above. How? What are we talking about here? Literally, that means, what are we talking about here? But mit, mit nam name. Somebody says, no, we're talking about, you know, where the, the man is dozing. He's not fully, deeply asleep. What does that mean? Where? What kind of circumstances could we have for dozing like that? Amrav Ashi, nim v'lo nim. So what happens? He's asleep, but he's not really asleep. He's awake. We've all been in this status at some point, even if perhaps not in a yibum bed, right? When what happens then is, you know, somebody calls him and he answers, but that doesn't mean he's quite making sense. And then later they tell him, you know, we called you, and he says, Yeah, yeah, I had that conversation, and he doesn't necessarily fully um have a grasp of what happened but he he's kind of awake okay so now let's come back to the question right that says you know what are we talking about here in terms of the man being uh, you know not conscious of the act that his body isn't doing gufa amaraba nafal minhagav so the case here the Gemara refers to a case that is really discussed in greater detail elsewhere. I'm thinking off the cuff of Sanhedrin in the eighth chapter of Sanhedrin, but it may come up elsewhere as well, um, where uh, the case here is that a man fell off the roof and then was, and the language here is, you know, he was stuck in, pardon me, but that's the language here, into a woman. Right? The word woman is not here, but that's the point, right? That So that his body and her body are engaged in the sex act, and the issue then is what happens. So now because of his fall, he has to pay four of five, four out of five different kinds of damages. Or, or they're all called different things. So let's see what they are, right? Um, so first of all, we said he has to pay all these damages. And also if that same woman that he kind of fell upon into uh, was his yivama, then Yibum would not have taken place because there was no intent in his fall for him to suddenly somehow engage in sexual intercourse at this time. So what are the what are these damages that he has to pay? Benezek, that's literally called damages. Tsar, tsar is like emotional distress. Beshevet um, is a loss of livelihood. Beripui, that's medical, you know, medical um, disability, I suppose. Aval boshet lo 
But the issue of embarrassment, right? This is another fee, another, um, you know, even in American law, this can happen also, right? Where people will sue for damages and they'll talk about emotional distress and so on. So here, if we're talking about shame, shame is not something that he would be obligated to pay unless, I'm sorry, the Amarmar ain't unless he actually intended to humiliate the person that he has, you know, fallen upon. But the point is that this was totally, uh, basically totally accidental. Um, okay. Now, again, there's this question of how could this take place without his intent, without his knowledge. So Rava gives us a very, again, it's an explicit description. He says if he intended to press himself, right? And this means literally to press his penis into the wall, against the wall, and instead, right? So somehow, instead, he actually engages insects with his yivama instead of with the wall. Again, very explicit and a little disturbing and a little difficult to talk about. Lokana, this is not an act of yibum because his intent had been something totally else. Now, and this is, again, going to be disturbing, um, if he intended to engage in bestiality, right? Meaning he intended to um, insert his penis into an animal and instead ended up with his yavama. So the Gemara here says, Kana. In that case, in fact, Yibum does take place. Because his intent is Bia. His intent is to have some version of a sex act regardless of the fact that it is not with a woman, regardless of the fact that it's not with this woman, his Yavama, the fact that it is specifically, um, or or I guess I should really say generally, intentional sex, um, this Gemara suggests that that is enough. Um, I want to just go back and say one thing that I made reference to, and then I realize it's not actually in the Gemara here. It is in the Gemara, in that Gemara in Sanhedrin, where the discussion is, you know, how can it be that... Um, that that this fall, let's say, from on high, that somehow the man is, uh, you know, able to, quote unquote, insert himself into the Yavama as she happens to be there. And the issue seems to be like, as the Gemara pr- presents the second case here, you know, if he aroused himself in some other manner, right, then the arousal is still, as I'm going to say, available to him for when somebody else, let's say, might come and you know, push him onto this woman or whatever. We saw this in the case of the Mishnah, right? In the case of Onis, right? That the the forcing is not that he is forcing her, but that somebody else is forcing him or therefore them to engage in this act. So so the cases are really um, somewhat fantastical. And yet I think that we can all imagine, um, you know, there are some really difficult kinds of situations where one might in fact have oppressed you know, some sicko and oppression type of thing. This maybe theoretically seriously could have happened. This is not the way to do Yibum. The question is, would Yibum have happened? Would it have taken place? And now they are, in fact, um, you know, exempt from whatever other procedures they might have needed to do for the sake of Yibum because all of this has taken place. So, you know, in our constant discussion, Anne, that we have about boundary pushing, um, this to me is a very boundary pushing uh, case or sort of series of cases that they discuss here, but it feels a little 
different to me um, because I don't know, it's practical in a different way that we don't sort of see some of the other um, boundary pushing cases that we have. Um, I'm not sure I can articulate exactly what I mean by that, but like, in other words, it's, they're fantastical, but it would have a very, maybe it's almost because the case that we're discussing, you know, has to really do with, would this woman be considered to have been married or not married to this man? Um, it, It has a different sense to me of sort of its importance than let's say something in Hilcho Shabbos or a Reuven um, and, and maybe it's because it really is dealing with like a, a human relationship as opposed to a different area of halacha. That's interesting. I think part of it is truly this challenge. And I think Chazal had the challenge, you know, to think about how could it possibly be that the man would be aroused and engaged in the sexual act without without his will, without his intent, right? We'll, you know, get up and walk away if you don't want to be doing it, Right. Or, or have your own intent kick in right now because this is what Yibum is supposed to be. What, what's really going on? So they have to, I feel like they have to reach much further afield to come up with a scenario where intent would not be part of this particular individual's conduct. And it's just that difficult to, yeah, to, I, to find that case. I think that's a good point. And I think also one of the things that's interesting and why it's so key with Yibum is the intent is what's important here. And we even to the point where we get to Abba Shaul, and it seems actually Chazal sort of adapts this, that they sort of question, did anybody ever do this? Or in their days, maybe nobody's intent was really pure, and therefore Chalitza actually became preferable. So Yibum is an unusual mitzvah in that we're, it's not in the same way we talk about like Kavana with, you know, Kriyashma. Here we're talking about that there's a particular act that has to happen with a particular intention, right? Not, you know, it, it's not a kavana issue. It's like there's an intention issue here. And um, and I think that's why these sort of, you know, th- this type of questions really appear here. It, it's different than other halachot or other areas where we've talked about concepts of kavana. It's not a kavana issue. It's the intent is part and parcel of the yibu mitzvah itself. Right. If the, if it's not L'Shem Yibum, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. So I'm just going to like sort of continue on the sexually explicit nature of the stat. <laughs> and the Gemara then gets into another very interesting piece. And this to me doesn't. And the reason why I wanted to read it is because this piece doesn't feel boundary pushing. Like I actually think this was really uh, like they wanted to understand the answer of this, which is Echad HaMe'arat. Right. So here, this is quoting the Mishnah that talks about that if somebody begins an act of intercourse um, versus someone who completed it, but even the beginning of an act could be a way with which the, the Yibum relationship is solidified. Amar Ula, so Ula says, So Ula wants to know, where do we derive that this initial part of intercourse is actually considered to be like the full act? Shinamar, and so they quote a pasuk here from Vayikra chapter 20, verse 18. Vishasher Sher Yishkav Atisha Dava Vigila et Ervata et Mikoraha Era. Right? If a man lies with a woman having her sickness, right, and shall uncover her nakedness, he has made naked Hera her fountain. So this, they basically derive from here that this is sort of referring to uh, the first part of intercourse. Right. And that's what the hera'ah is. 
Um, and, and from mikan lehera'ah min ha-Torah. Um, and I, 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 where they're getting this from is, uh, you know, uh, just the piece of uh, vigila, uh, sorry, vigila et ervata et mikora hera'ah, right? That this phrase here, that he uncovers her nakedness and he made naked her fountain. So what is this hera'ah that the pasuk is referring to? And so Ula says that this is referring to the first part of the act. Now the Gemara wants to know, right? right? We found a source. So this particular case is talking about a case where a woman is in is menstruating, where she's a nida. So they're saying, okay, we found a source for this with a woman who's a nida. Like maybe this concept of having sort of an initial part of intercourse is only a concept with a woman who's a nida. But maybe this doesn't apply to the other arayas. So how do we know this? Right? From where would you get that this initial part of intercourse is considered sexual intercourse with the rest of the arias? They're trying to do this more. If you say we should derive it from a woman who's a nida, right? There's a, something is different about a woman who's a nida because a woman who's a nida is actually much more stringent than, let's say, the other arias because a woman who's a nida actually when she has intercourse, right, she is actually also, she's ritually impure. She's actually tame. So somebody who has intercourse with her also becomes tame. That's different than the other arias. There's no issue of Tuman Tower. It's just somebody you're not supposed to have a sexual relationship with. So where do they learn it from? El Atame Ech of Ish. So rather, maybe the halacha, right, should come from a, a, a brother's wife. And so here they're going to quote also Pasuk from Vayikra, chapter 20, 20, verse 21, right? Right? So it says, if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an impurity. It is a nida. So here, usually the word nida refers to a menstruating woman. So the, so the Gemara asks, why would an Eshadachiv also be called a nida? Rather, what it's trying to teach us is it's just like a, menstru- a halacha about a menstruating woman. Just as somebody gets a, basically can be punished, right, for having or engaging in a prohibited sexual relationship with a nida, through an initial part of intercourse, right? So too, with a brother's wife, you also can, uh, you are also punished, even if it's just the initial, uh, if the, if it's just an initial stage. So then the Gemara goes on to say, okay. So the Gemara says, wait, maybe we can't really compare a brother's wife to the other relations, right? Why? Because the the prohibition, okay, with a brother's wife is maybe more strict uh, because it's within, in his power to increase sort of the number of women uh, uh, forbidden by this prohibition as he wishes. He can go on and marry, you know, sort of, uh, 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 he can go on and basically marry a thousand women, but Azoki Alpa, he can marry a thousand women, all of whom would then be forbidden to his brother. In other words, there's something about the Eshet Ach, right? Which is that there's sort of an infinite number of women with which a man, one brother could make sort of a sore to the other brothers. So this seems to be a little bit of a different type of erva. Okay. So rather the halacha, right, comes 
from uh, from a verse about a father's sister and a mother's sister. So here again, they're going to quote another pasuk from the same chapter in Baikra, chapter twenty, verse nineteen. See, right? You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister nor of your father's sister, for he may naked Hera his you know his uh, his, his next of kin. So the Gemara says, is it, can you, can you refute this source, right? What comparison basically can be made between other women where, you know, that where the relationship is forbidden and a father's sister and a mother's sister, which are unique in that actually they're prohibited on their own, right? These are not prohibitions that stem from marriage, but rather it's biological, so then the Gemara goes on again and says, right? So I, again, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but they're going to basically try to work through uh, where do we get, uh, you know, where do we basically get, um, uh, you know, this uh, concept from that the initial act is actually also considered to be um, a, a, a full act. And so they basically conclude at the end, right? So it says, rather, let's say the prohibition comes from a menstruating woman from Anita and from a brother's wife, and that basically they don't share any sort of unique features. And so ultimately, we're going to say that it, it, that it basically falls from here. Um, but I, you know, it's, 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 and then, and then there's going to be a disagreement, Ravacha, uh, And they're going to keep discussing this about how do we compare the menstruating brother and a, and a brother's wife, which are the most stringent. Can we apply it to other things? But I really just wanted to read. That sort of boundary pushing, right? This whole concept of there sort of being an initial act versus the completed act. And the fact that they actually derive it from the psukim themselves it was very interesting to me. And that almost like, you know, when we think of, uh, you, you know, when we think of the act of intercourse, it's sort of just the act of intercourse. And here we have like, halakhically at least, we sort of break it down into different pieces. And I'm not completely clear why we do. I, I mean, I, I understand why we do, because I guess, uh, you know, their point is it's not about the act being completed. It's actually about it being started. Um, and I, I don't know, I just find that to be like, uh, it, it, it's interesting and in sort of how they, um, you know, um, how they make that apply to all of these uh, prohibitive relations, because I guess the loophole they're trying to get out of is, is that maybe somebody would argue, well, I didn't complete the act. So therefore, what I didn't do is actually a sore. And essentially what the rabbi, what Chazal saying is, if it has any whiff of intercourse, like, no, we're going to consider that to be the act and it's going to be a sort. Like, I, I think they're trying to close a particular loophole that exists without having this sort of uh, added layer put added to it. That's interesting. I don't I don't really have anything to add here. I, I, I think it's a lot of food for thought in terms of how Allah is very precise and the the bigger picture, as you've just described, that I think is part of the Chazal intent here to make this like, you know, as much as as it is so detailed and so focused on the detail. And then I feel like, well, 
the bigger picture ends up also being important here. Right. I, I, yeah, I don't know. That's just my theory. Cause it's so interesting, like how detailed they go into it. Like they could have just really said like, okay, the initial act is considered the complete act, but they're really trying to work through where do we learn it from? It, it, like the fact that they want to tie it to a biblical source is very interesting to me. And, and I guess I, that's the only theory I can come up with is it, it closes a loophole. Like it's, it's not about the act being completed. It's actually about the act being started. That's our daft discussion for the day. Thank you for join, joining us. Rank us reviews where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff, if you dare. Um, thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.